You'll take your Bibles, that treasure of a book that you brought with you, I trust, this morning to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And while you're making your way there, I don't know if you realize it, it will become plain in just a moment, but the song that you just sung, Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call, is literally really inspired from this particular psalm. So it's to say it's apropos would be an understatement. As you make your way to Psalm 42, uh, again, it's always a, a pleasure and an honor to preach God's word in this pay, uh, pulpit. Uh, there is a commitment to faithfulness here. Uh, the high view of God and a high view of God's word, and our pastor is faithful in that regard. We are blessed. We are thankful. I don't know if you realize that, but on top of the other things that our pastor does, not to venerate him, we're here to exalt Jesus Christ, but our pastor speaks about 12 languages, so um, he actually led the service in Spanish, so tack that on the list. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So, he mentioned that was a rich and worshipful time. If you'll open God's word, if you're already there, with a spirit ready to be instructed, we just sang, Why are you cast down, my soul, Hope in God who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. Which is what we want the Lord to do for his glory today. The psalm reads, for the choir director, a maskil, the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Church, if you'll bow your head and close your eyes, let's approach the Lord with a degree of reverence and earnest to be instructed and be shaped into his glory. Father, you know I feel a particular weight this morning. Mindful that in a group this size, there are no doubt a group of people who brought wounds into this place, 
who brought despondency and despair. And just to be quite honest, brought discouragement. So Lord, we pray that you would assist us to hope in you. For we shall yet praise you. We know that if there is any hope-filled salve that's going to minister to wounds today, any conformity that's going to be accomplished to your likeness, it will be because your spirit delights to be with us and move in power this day for your glory. And so we plead and ask that you do all these things for the exaltation of yourself and for the good enrichment of your people. We bask in your love and care for us this day, even as you extend it through the instruction of your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As followers of Jesus Christ, we obviously labor to gain gospel progress, and we want to do so together. But as human beings who live in a fallen world, we have our share of setbacks, don't we? One particular setback, especially if not addressed biblically, is that of depression and discouragement. All of us are plagued with some form of depression. We are, after all, human. And our lives are filled with disappointment and discouragement, pain and sorrow. This life, after Genesis 3, you know this from experience, is not a bed of roses. And so depression is something that can come upon you very suddenly, rapidly, or can actually creep up on you very gradually. And unfortunately, some in the church today seem to think that once you are born, ag- born again, that all of a sudden you are somehow automatically and constantly filled with this sort of heaven-focused joy. And it's a heaven-focused joy that they think renders you completely and utterly unable to be affected by the trouble of this life. I would ask you today, is that your life experience? The short answer is no. Depression does not vanish once you are born again. And so this is part of the reason why we are so comforted to see discouraged, wrestling individuals in Scripture. I'm talking real, raw human beings with emotions like you and I. Give you an example, even in the redemptive history, in the history of the church. You have a man by the name of William Cowper. He's one of the church's greatest hymn writers to date. And he was a person, no doubt, mightily used by God himself. But William was not without his frequent bouts with discouragement and depression. At the age of 32 years old and still having no saving relationship with Jesus Christ, Cowper spiraled out of control, attempted suicide three times, and was eventually admitted into an insane asylum. By God's wonderful design, Cowper was attended by one Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, an evangelical and a lover of God. Six months later, and reeling with the guilt from his past insanity, Cowper would proceed to find a Bible that no doubt Dr. Cotton had left, and he read Romans 3.25, which speaks of Jesus Christ, writing, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. William Cowper had many, many sins of which he was plagued by. Cowper went on to record, Immediately I received the strength to believe it. In the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. 
I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood in all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. And unless the almighty arm had been under me, I should have died with joy and gratitude. Now, friends, what's telling about Cowper's life is that even in this awakening, in this insertion of hope in his life, Cowper's bout with depression was not over. His closest friend would go on to be a person who, who would have his own rap sheet of sin. A former slave trader by the name of John Newton. For 13 years, Newton would be Cowper's pastor and closest friend, never leaving his side. Newton observed quickly Cowper's propensity towards melancholy and reclusiveness. And every time he was tempted to slip into isolation, Newton would always bring him back into the life of the body. I reference individuals like not only the psalmist that we're going to unpack today, but also William Cooper, because what does this communicate to you and I? Friends, what it communicates is that even the strongest of believers can suffer extreme discouragement and even despair. And listen, the problem is not in suffering. The problem is being content to stay in that state of despair and not addressing it and not facing it biblically. And I use the word face it very intentionally because for you and I who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who made propitiation in his blood, We want to address despair biblically. We want to face it. For what is the opposite of facing despair? Well, the opposite is not acknowledging at all. It's passivity. It's self-abasement. It's defeat. It's despair. It's refusing to grab a hold of who your God is and what his assuring sovereign embrace means for you and I who await glory. For those of us who love Christ... And I trust you love Christ this morning. You want to face depression biblically. And the sweet promise to you and I is that that same Jesus whom you love will help you in your hour of need. We sang of it a moment ago. The one who is is the sure of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. And that is who we know him to be in our hour of darkness. If you're taking notes today, the main idea over the whole of the song is this. The believer faces depression by longing for the presence of God and exhorting his or her soul to hope in him. Longing for the presence of God and exhorting his or her soul to hope in him. Now at the outset, we would do well to even define what depression is, right? You cannot address and face what you do not identify. What is depression? Martin Lloyd-Jones called it the dark night of the soul. Gisbertus Voitus, a Dutch theologian and reformer, said depression is when a man or woman fails to feel his or her delight in God and divine things. What a great description. It is when you fail to feel your delight in God and divine things. This Psalm has a lot to address in our hearts. And the Lord knows what state you've entered into today. Perhaps it's one full of joy and gratitude and contentment. But that may not be the case for tomorrow. And Psalm 42 ever needs to be ready in your heart and mind to address headlong the issue of depression. Let's begin to observe a few things right at the outset. There's a heading 
And I encourage you to pay attention to headings, for it's written to the choir master, the sons of Korah, a maskil. Now, being students of God's word, what questions should you and I ask of a heading? Well, at the outset, we find that these are the sons of Korah. Now, this is a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing. 2 Chronicles 20.19 describes them in actions. The Korahites stood up to praise God, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. And so what does this heading imply for you and I? For starters, the heading implies that this is a psalm that no doubt was intended for, for this, for public worship. It was intended to be uttered in song. And why? It's because you have these psalms throughout the Psalter that are written for a particular purpose. They're written to awaken and shape and express the emotional life of God's people. The second thing to notice in the heading is that this psalm is called a maskil. Now, maskil is a Hebrew word that means to make someone wise, to instruct. This psalm is intended to instruct you today. Instruct you in what? Well, if you've been attending Sunday school, we've been spending the summer in a bit of the psalms. First one we covered was Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law, the Torah, the instruction of the Lord, and meditates on it day and night. Yes, the Psalms are intended to be a hymn book. Yes, they are intended to be sung, but they're also an instruction manual. They're intended to teach you so that you might know what in your life? So that you might know Asherah. Blessedness, well-being in every area of your life. Do you not want blessedness in your life this morning? If so, we take note of Psalm 42, this maskil. Through it, one of the benefits of this psalm and others is that we begin to absorb really counterintuitive ways to think and feel. You see, our hearts are not naturally inclined to hope in God, is it? We're naturally inclined. We have a propensity to be dismayed, to be short-sighted, to have spiritual myopia. Where all we see is our life and our circumstances and our pain. And yet through the Psalms we absorb very counterintuitive and helpful ways to think and feel. The Psalms shape what our minds are to think and molds what our hearts should feel. And when we immerse ourselves in them like we do this morning, we begin to think and feel with the God that we worship. That's what I'm praying for this morning that the Lord would do through this psalm. Let's just note a few things about the backdrop, the context. When, when you have someone saying, why are you cast down on my soul? Something's obviously going on in his life, no? Well, depression always has both external and internal circumstances. Now, externally, the psalmist's circumstances was no doubt one of oppression. Look at verse 3. He says that his enemies say to him all day long, where is your God? They taunt him, mock him, deride him. And in verse 10, it says the same exact thing, only it describes the effect as a deadly wound. As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And friends, they taunt him with this question of derision, where is your God, which is a form of mocking, it implies that something has obviously gone wrong in the psalmist's life. So that to these who do not hope in God, it appears that what? That the psalmist has been abandoned. 
and that he's alone. And this, coupled with the mocks, the derision, is causing something to occur internally within the psalmist. Well, in verses 5 and 11, we see what, exactly what it is. He describes himself as cast down and in turmoil. Verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Church family, what sort of emotional state is the psalmist in? Well, the internal emotional condition of the psalmist is that he's depressed. He's full of turmoil. He's so discouraged to the point that all he can do is cry literally night and day. I would ask you this morning, perhaps you're sitting there today and you've been there. You're either there right now, you've been there in the past, or perhaps you will be there in the future. Even in verse 7, he says he feels like he is drowning. God, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Friends, here is where this psalm is so encouraging to me, is that this is a real man. A real human being with a real walk of faith, with real emotions. And a real human being who is not where he wants to be. Why are you cast down, O my soul? In fact, not only is he fighting for hope, but he's, he's still fighting for hope at the end of the psalm. We don't ever know if his circumstances change. But he's fighting for hope all the same. He wants to praise God. But he's finding it extremely difficult. And yet, nevertheless, this is a man who will not surrender to his emotions. He will not yield to discouragement. He will fight back. Now, if you're a student of God's word and a lover of Christ this morning, you should ask, how does he fight back? I want to know how to fight back. Well, let's begin to unpack this line by line, and you will note six biblical ways to face depression. Six practical points of guidance that ought to shape how you deal with your own season of darkness. Number one is this. Facing depression biblically requires a genuine acknowledgement of your condition and an honest ownership of your truest need. A genuine acknowledgement of your condition and an honest ownership of your truest need. Verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Church, I fear that a lot of people drown in despair because they are never honest nor humble enough to acknowledge their condition. And you cannot face, listen, you cannot face what you do not acknowledge. I also fear that a lot of people drown in despair because they remain disillusioned as to what their true need is. Listen to me very carefully. Your greatest need is not for comfort. It's not for your circumstances to change. It's not even for relief. Your truest need is for God himself. And we frequently ask what is meant by God works all things together for the good of those who love him, and works all things together for his glory. When we ask that, we are not always mindful, as we should be. 
that oftentimes, what does our God do in the midst of trial? He uses trial and uses suffering to intensify what in our lives? To intensify our longing for himself. Our dependency upon him. And I'll share with you a little secret this morning. Friends, that is the sweetest of places to be. To long for your God and need your God. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. What a vivid picture. This wide-eyed deer having just run feverishly from whatever's troubled him. Whatever's alarmed him. And with every writhing step, his thirst and his panting intensifies. For the psalmist, he was in this kind of season. This was a time of emotional drought, spiritual dryness. And again, perhaps you can relate this morning. You're parched, you're weary, you're dismayed. I think the encouraging part here with this picture is that a deer doesn't pretend that he doesn't need water, does he? There's no hiding it. Nor does the psalmist pretend that as if he doesn't need God. And that he doesn't need God first and foremost. He pants for God. That word pants there is to have a keen, that's important, a keen and consuming desire for something. In this case, someone. His driving passion was not for people, not for possessions, not for prosperity. His driving passion and longing and yearning was for God himself. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. All the hope and trust and confidence in this psalmist was in the living God. Not the vain idols of pagan idolatry around him. And they were many. No, this was in the living God. His thirst was for the true God, who this psalmist knew was self-sufficient and independent and autonomous and willing to come to the aid of those who love him. Psalm 46.1, our God is our refuge and strength. And you know it, right? An ever-present help in what? Trouble. He's a refuge and strength. The psalmist knows this, and so he longs. He's desperate. And his further desperation is reflected in the question, God, when shall I come and appear before you? I want to be very clear this morning. This is... Let's be theologically precise. This is not a denial of God's omnipresence. He knew that God was all places at all times. This is not a denial of his presence. This was rather a longing for God's felt presence. You see, the psalmist longed for a deeper personal awareness of of the God that he knew was there. This individual is no doubt suffering in loneliness. Why? Because somehow, and we're not given details, but in his affliction, part of that affliction is the public absence from worship with God's people at the temple in Jerusalem, something that he was very familiar with. And so the psalmist says, God, I long for you, the living God. When can I come and appear before you? Oh, how my soul Longs to feel and sense and be ministered by your presence. 
If you want to face depression biblically this morning, it entails you having a genuine acknowledgement of your condition. It's not for your circumstances to change. You need God. You need God himself. Secondly, facing depression biblically entails refusing to listen to the voices of those who do not hope in God. Refusing to listen to the voices of those who do not hope in God. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? This extreme longing for God was intensified by the psalmist's no doubt hostile environment. And it was a hostile environment caused and created by men who were saying to him all day long, Where is your God? These men, according to verses 9 and 10, these, these men are the psalmist's enemies. Individuals who taunt him to, to doubt, to fear, to rest into a place of despondency about the character of God. You see, the attacks of the psalmist's enemies are, are not exactly an attack against the psalmist himself, is it? No, their attacks are against his God and against God's character. They were asking, Son of Korah, where, where is your God when you need him? You said that he's always with you. Where, where is your God now? Where is your God? It was a question of scorn and mocking. And brothers and sisters, is that not the message of the world that you live in today? People who do not love God, who in fact hate God and his agenda. People who are hell-bent in rebellion. The message of this world that is ruled by the prince of the the power of the air is the exact same thing. And these attacks took an honest and real toll upon the psalmist. My tears have been my food day and night. It's obviously causing him such deep sorrow that the man couldn't even eat or drink. Again, perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you've been in a state before where your appetite just sort of kind of vanishes. You lose a sense of delight and taste for anything delectable on the earth. What's our message this morning from this psalmist? I would encourage you today, and you know this to be true in your own life. There will always be voices around you who will prove to be unhelpful. There will always be voices that will prove to be unhelpful. And facing depression biblically entails refusing to listen to those voices who don't know the same living God that you pant for. You have to acknowledge your condition. You have to have honest ownership of your truest need. And you have to plug your ears to the voices around you. We don't need other people's help to find despondency. We do that just fine all by ourselves. Refuse to listen to the voices who do not hope in God. And so we plug our ears. God, I need you. And I will not listen to others around me. Who do not love and pan for you. Number three, facing depression biblically requires using your present trouble to reflect upon grace, God's grace in the past. We use our present trouble to reflect upon God's grace in the past. Verse four. 
following the question of where is your God, the psalmist writes immediately, these things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and a voice of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Listen, friends, as the psalmist reflected on his present condition and his plight and his circumstances, his mind was drawn to remember the positive past. And what the psalmist is pouring out his soul about is, is now present in his pain, present and painful separation from Jerusalem. You see that in verse 6. He recalls the blessing he received and even enjoyed to fullest measure in traveling along with the multitude of believers. Why? Why did they travel? It was to worship in the house of God. To be in His presence in a tangible corporate way. But that wasn't the case anymore. Whatever His plight and circumstances, He found Himself separated from this blessing. And this blessing, in light of that separation, it now eluded Him. And so He writes in verse 6, God, I remember these things. And as I do, I miss them. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. He says, oh, my soul, my soul is in despair within me. And listen, I want this to instruct you today as it instructs me. Therefore, I what? I pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, I remember you. He's not simply remembering being with God's people. But he's remembering the sweet presence of God himself. He says in the land of the Jordan, that region beyond the Jordan River, northeast of Jerusalem, where Mount Hermon was located. He says the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now, Mazar means little hill or little mountain. It was more than likely a lesser peak in the mountain range of Hermon, just northeast of Jerusalem. So evidently, the sons of Korah, whoever wrote this psalm, they were removed from their place of ministry, removed from their place of usefulness, which was service to God in the temple. That was what was familiar to him, what blessed him, what enriched him his life, what he enjoyed. And so what we're picking up from this psalm is that this psalmist was no doubt on the outer edges of his homeland. He's, he's away from the comforts and conveniences of what he knew to be familiar And what he remembers while now separated was the voice of joy that he once knew. The voice of thanksgiving that his life was personally enriched by by worshiping Yahweh with his people. And this remembrance of past experience grace, it was doing something in the psalmist's life. It was ministering to him when he was in a dry and weary place. A place induced by separation from God's people. I would ask this morning as we look at the example of the psalmist where we always want to be faithful students of God's word. We have to ask, well, Lord, how do I bridge the gap between the psalmist's experience to that of my own? I think we emulate the same example, do we not? Therefore, I remember you. Is that your routine instinct? Is that your typical response? 
Or is it to wallow in self-pity? Is it to swim in the mire of your own thoughts and your own inventions, your own inflation of reality? Or is your instinct and your impulse, sanctified impulse, to say, God, my soul is in despair within me, therefore I remember you. How do we bridge the gap between the psalmist and today we emulate this exact same psalmist? You're going to find your life dry at some point, perhaps even today. You're going to find your soul very parched. And in those moments, we would do well to remember God's past grace, experienced in the past. Have you experienced God's grace? Friends, we just read Romans 3.25. He who made propitiation through his blood. William Cowper wrote, the son of righteousness shone upon him. The sweet blessing of justification overwhelmed his life. But not for the almighty arm, he would dive of gratitude and joy. Is that you this morning? Hebrews 13, 7, this book that we're in on Sunday morning says, Remember those who led you. Remember those before you, like the psalmist, who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. It's not that the man was without struggle. But his fight for faith and hope is exemplary nonetheless. It's a mesquite to make us wise, to instruct us. Fourth, biblical way to face depression. Facing depression biblically includes resting in the sovereign love of God. Verse 7. Listen, friends, God's sovereignty does not diminish or is ever under trial in your trouble. His love is never in question in the midst of your trial. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. This psalmist who sought the same flowing streams of water in verses 1 and 2 had now found a tempest of waters doing what? They were overwhelming his soul. And his distress is figuratively portrayed through this picture of a violent storm. And violent water. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. Literally, you can picture the image, right? A a sailor clinging to a piece of driftwood. Out in a raging storm. Tossed back and forth by the waves of the sea. Taking in water and no sign, a visible sign of hope or rescue in front of him. You and I can picture it. Let me ask today, have you ever seen the face of a man at the precipice of drowning? If you have, you know that there is absolutely no other face like it on the planet. It is a face of terror and panic and desperation, helplessness. That moment right before one's eyes and face crest below the surface. It's a terrifying look. And yet this is the face of the psalmist. The waterfalls, the breakers, the waves, they just keep pouring over him. There's the old adage that when it rains, it pours. And that was true in the psalmist's life, these mounting trials, waves, breakers, waterfalls. But I would ask you this morning, notice for a moment, family of God, who's directing these waves? These waves are directed by one. These are the Lord's waves. Your waterfalls, your breakers, 
your ways. God, they are under your complete control. You have not lost control. These waves, waterfalls, breakers, they are rolling over me. I am desperate. My soul is in despair, but you are working for my good and for your glory. These are your waves. What about his enemies? No, the psalmist knew of the sovereignty of God. You and I can picture this. You have this absolute face of hopelessness and despondency. Then all of a sudden bum rush with a resolute understanding that my God is sovereign. And he's in control. And then having that resolute understanding do something in your life. That understanding consoles you in your pain. It assuages your fear and temptation to despair. My soul is in despair within me. But look at verse 8 as well. He continues. This acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. More of a declaration, a pronouncement of what he knows to be true. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. You see, although the psalmist was no doubt overwhelmed by his predicament, and he was. He could say, even in that moment, that the Lord directed his loving kindness with veracity and care and precision. And he directed that loving kindness towards the psalmist. This love was unconditional. This was covenantal love. This was the eternal love of God for his people who would not abandon them in their hour of need. The psalmist knew of this love. And he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, despite what it felt like, that his God would not fail him or leave him. He says, at night. At night, the psalmist says, God's song was with me. What a picture, right? Obviously, there's so much pain and turmoil, despair and despondency in the psalmist's life that he has trouble sleeping. Again, anyone ever been there? And not only does God direct his loving kindness, his steadfast love towards me in the daytime, but his song, his beautiful song, is with me in the night. There was never a time when the God was not with the psalmist, although he doesn't always necessarily feel his presence. That's no doubt true in your life this morning. There's what you know. And then there's what you feel. And they're not always on the same page, are they? Everyone today can relate to a sense of absence and distance. Even, even though that theologically we know that not to be the case. We know, Craig quoted it this morning, Hebrews 13, 5, that we have a God, we worship a God, belong to a God, who will never leave us or forsake us. And we relish that. It's sweet to us. You sang a moment ago. You can tell I love singing. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me. I am not alone. Oh, his love is sure, and he knows my name. For my God is, what? The ancient of days. The psalmist knew the sovereign love of God. 
and he rested in it, even though his soul was in despair. I remember you. Number five, for there's more psalm to cover. Facing depression biblically calls for unashamed transparency before the Lord. Unashamed transparency before the Lord. Verse 9, I will say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, why have you forgotten me is the overstatement of his life. He knows that God has not forgotten him. This is a psalmist who just finished saying, By day the Lord directs his steadfast love towards me. He commands his loving kindness. And at night his song is with me. The psalmist knows this. So why ask and why say before the Lord in all real raw emotion, God, why have you forgotten me? Why does he ask this? He knows that God hasn't forgotten him. Friends, this person has, maybe like you, he has a robust theology today. He knows what is true. He knows that his God is with him, but his emotions are assaulting his theological knowledge. There's what he knows and there's what he feels, and again, they're not always in lockstep together. Again, perhaps you can relate this morning. What's the takeaway for you and I? What do we glean from this example? When I, when I say we face depression biblically by being unashamedly transparent before God, it would be this. Christians, bring your emotions to God. Bring them. Bring your feelings to God. But I add a quick caveat. Bring your emotions to God, but don't bring it with a, with, with a spirit of arrogance. Don't ever bring it with a spirit of bitterness and rage and pride or irreverent obstinance. No, bring your emotions to God, but do so in a spirit where you want to be instructed. God, why have you forgotten me? I know you have it, but man, it feels like it. And you lay that before the Lord. And you know what is true in your life? God knows more of what you know and feel than even you do. He already knows your pain. He already knows your plight. He knows your wrestling. And nevertheless, we, we articulate our pain. We lay it before his feet in humility and say, God, would you instruct me? Would you correct me? Inform me? Help me absorb counterintuitive ways to think and feel because my soul is in despair within me. We have far, far too many believers today pretending that they are just theological robots. And the psalmist says this because this is what he feels like, and we would do well to take note. Be honest before the Lord. Do not, don't be a theological robot. Don't bottle up inside what you're feeling, how you're writhing the pain that you're experiencing. Let it, articulate it before the Lord. Lay it before him. Cast your cares upon him. For he what? He cares for you. But you do so in a spirit of utter humility and desperation for God himself. Let the God that you love, the living God, work in your honesty. Secondly, my encouragement would, 
to you would be this, before we have one more to mention. Remember this when you are tempted to slam the theological book on someone else in despair. You may have robust theology, but please, please, please avoid nitpicking someone's lack of theological precision when in a moment of despair. Would you instead show compassion, show grace, show patience? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, by all means be patient with everyone. You're going to have people in this body, and even yourself someday, that you are going to be able to say, why are you my soul? Why are you despair within me? What you don't need is a brother and sister in Christ to come and nitpick and slam a theological book in your face. By all means, bring the book. But don't come alongside them and smack them along the head with it. Put your arm around them and love them. And say, but for the grace of God go I. There's hope for you. Let me pant with you for the living God. That is far more helpful. Soapbox step aside. Let's move on. Verse 10. This oppression began to no doubt affect the psalmist physically, literally affected his body. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. Literally, the the word there is to murder in bones. Murder in my bones. Physical pain was being caused by the relentless personal attacks of his foes. And, And these foes are not using real swords. They're not using real spears, but they are no doubt using the sword of the tongue. And that sword is cutting extremely deep for this psalmist. These people are saying to me all day long, they're incessant, they're relentless. Where is your God? Mocking and shaming. Where is your God? Friends, articulate before the Lord the pain you are experiencing. Does he know your pain? Absolutely. But you are still tasked, just as the psalmist, to still communicate and put into words. You're still to manifest what it is to cast your cares upon you and upon him. And how do you do that if you don't express it? If you hem it in. Again, I, somehow I think we think we're theological robots and we shouldn't feel these things. And yet you open God's word and you see people feeling these things all the time. Take solace in this and follow their example. And do so in a spirit that wants to be destructive, instructed. Lord, I need your mass skill. Make me wise. Number six, and finally, facing depression biblically demands that we preach to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. Now, there's a careful nuance there. This really comes from the heart of the psalm, verses 5 and 11. The middle and the end cap. So that when surrounded by troubles and discouragement, and no doubt you will be or even are, there's a simple but sure remedy For spiritual depression. And the cure for the troubled soul is always what? To hope in God. And to hope in God exclusively. Knowing that he will never fail you. Verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Friends, he's literally talking to himself. And notice the psalmist answers to his question. Why are you in despair? 
hope in God. For me, I imagine him yelling it with every ounce of energy that he can muster. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Then later repeated for emphasis. Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Friends, this is absolutely necessary and crucial in the fight of faith, which is what facing depression is. It is a fight of faith. The psalmist encouraged his heart to trust God. And to trust God with a positive expectation that my God, the living God, he's unlike any of the vain idols, lifeless idols that I'm surrounded by. My God will come through for me. My God will work for my good and for his glory. And my God, I know him from experience, I cling to this. Hope in God, he's going to do so with perfect wisdom. He's going to do so with perfect plans, perfect precision, and with absolutely perfect power. He will come through. I've known it in the past. I will know it today, and I will know it in the future. But he still has to preach to himself, doesn't he? Hope in God. Church family, we don't always live with this kind of same sit-on-the-edge-of-your-seat expectation, do we? We don't always faithfully cling to this. Why? It's important to ask why. It's painful, but important, and oh so helpful. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in it. He has a book called Spiritual Depression. Phenomenal book. Page 20, he writes this. Speaking of this psalm. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down on my soul, he asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, soul, listen for a moment that I may speak to you. Church, this is helpful because so much of our depression, this is well said, so much of our depression is the result of what? Is the result of listening to ourselves. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about errant errant musings, right? I'm talking about sitting in a pool of self-pity. You rehearse things, you inflate things, you invent things. And before you know it, you have a reality that is not so that's made you despondent. And so, so much of our depression is the result, and this is true in my own life, is the result of listening to myself instead of talking to myself with intentional, precise, hope-filled words. What kind of words? Biblical words. Gospel words. Words like Romans 8, right? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him freely for us all. How will he not freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and indeed was raised. This is beautiful. We know this in Hebrews. Even right now, sitting at the right hand of God. And listen to what he's doing. For you. He is interceding for you. Believer, how sweet is that? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we overwhelmingly do what? We conquer through our own efforts? No, through him who loved us. What do we say when talking to ourselves? We preach to ourselves gospel. Gospel truth. I trust you believe Romans 8.31 and following. I do. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the ultimate cause for all spiritual depression is unbelief. And that's true. And that being the case, it's ever important and crucial to preach to ourselves in moments of despair and depression. And they will come. For you and I, how do we live what we learn? I, we always want to be encouraged. God, what do we do? What do I do with this? I don't want to, I don't want to just leave with just instruction. I want to do something for your glory. Let me give you an evaluative question for starters. And it's intended to sting. How is your response to despair as a simple human being? How is your response to despair often different from the response of this discouraged psalmist? How is your response to despair often different? How does your life look differently than Psalm 42? Does your life embody Psalm 42, verse 5 and Psalm 42, verse 11? Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. Or is that absent and void in your life? I think instead of emulating Psalm 42, we do other things, don't we? For one, we often panic. We turn to man-made solutions when these things can never release us from our pain. Some people turn to work. Some people turn to hobbies. Others turn to a new purchase or a new pursuit to ease the pain. And still others turn to food or the bottle or drugs itself to ease their plight. Only to, in effect, to multiply their agony all the more. Friends, you know this as a follower of Jesus Christ who loves God's word. Lasting peace. Lasting peace. And genuine contentment is only found in one. Hope in God. And what do you have to do coming out of the psalm? You, like me, we have to discipline our minds. We have to direct our wills to do just that. To hope in God. Because I'm not naturally inclined to do so. We're tempted to dissolve in a pool of despair. And so we fight. Nothing else, and more importantly, no one else, can ever begin to pull you out of your depressing moments of life. There is only one. Hope in Him. Number two, address depression through the cross. Address depression through the cross. People in the Old Covenant entered God's presence when they entered the temple. That's in part what the psalmist was longing for and missing. But the temple, according to Hebrews 10.1, was only a shadow, wasn't it? It wasn't the substance, the reality of what was to come. Hebrews 10.19 says that you and I, we enter into the very presence of God himself by what? By the very blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.21 tells us that since we have this blood, and since we have this amazing high priest, what do we do? We confidently approach 
the throne of grace. We go right into his presence with sincere hearts, fully trusting in him. God, here is my pain. Here is my despair. Would you instruct me? Address depression through the cross. Third, address depression in community. Address depression in community. Don't rest in anguish alone. You see, transparency and humility before God, if we're going to face depression biblically, we, we have to have that humility. But when you're humble before God, what does that do? Transparency and humility before God begets transparency and humility before others. John Newton and William Cowper used to take extremely long walks. And what would they do? They would talk the things of God and his purpose for the church. And whenever Cowper would merge towards reclusiveness and isolation, and he would quite often, Newton would grab him by the scuff of the neck and in love bring him back into the body of Christ. Cowper would continue to wrestle. And there was John Newton by his side. In fact, it was recorded that several years, John Newton even forewent his vacation with his family. Why? Because he knew that his friend needed him and he would not leave his side. Northlake, we need the Lord to raise up a lot of John Newtons in this church. We will not leave each other's side, but we will encourage, other, encourage each other to hope in God. For you and I, we don't know if this psalm had a happy ending in the sense that we don't, we don't know if anything ever changed. The question of where is your God may have continued. The taunts may have persisted. We don't know if his earthly circumstances changed or if his plight was relieved. We don't. But what we see is this man's faith was real and raw and violent all the same. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. We would do well to do the same. Amen? If you'll stand to your feet and bow your heads, let's ask for the Lord's help because we need a lot of mercy and a lot of grace to live this out. Would you stand to your feet and the music team will come. Come. Father, we're about to sing in a moment a very familiar hymn. Words that we want to be fresh in our minds, in our hearts. We're going to sing, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. And we're going to sing, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Lord, would you teach us to say, it is well this morning. Teach us to hope in God when discouragement enters our life, and it will. We want to be people full of zeal, faithfulness, sound stewardship of our lives. We don't want to be crippled and paralyzed by despondency. Would you set our eyes on you, the living God, and teach us your ways? Lord, we know so that in so doing, you will bless us. We will know blessedness. Our lives will be enriched in every way. Our relationships on this earth would be enriched as well. But most importantly, your people would be a, a wonderfully sweet representation of what it is to hope in someone beyond this life, someone who is eternal, someone who is lasting, someone whose hope is sure. You are our sure and steady anchor. God, we love you. And our, all our praise belongs to you today for you, are, you rightfully deserve these things and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.